Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This is a podcast that seeks to explore and explain different perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the laws of war. Each episode, I speak with an expert in one of these areas of law to discuss their latest work on issues in their area of expertise. Now, this is only the fourth episode, the third conversation, and so it's still very much a work in progress as I try to find the right balance in making this both interesting and informative for other experts, while also making it interesting and helpful to the non-expert who wants to learn more about the laws of war. And so I welcome any feedback any of you may have, including ideas about issues you'd like to hear about or speakers you'd like to hear from, or even just critiques of technical aspects of the podcast. My contact info is on the website at jibjabpodcast.com. As are all the readings that are discussed in the episodes, by the way. I will say that the reception so far has been beyond my expectations. Only a couple of weeks in and each episode has had a few hundred listeners and there's been a lot of buzz about the podcast on Twitter. But if you do enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, please do two things. First, tell a couple of your friends or colleagues who you think might also like it especially if they're not on social media. And second, take a moment to give it a rating on iTunes, Google, or whatever platform you listen on. So today I'm speaking with Professor Ashley Deeks of the University of Virginia, who will certainly be well known to all the academics in this area of the law, and thus will need no introduction. But for everyone else, Ashley is a professor of law at the University of Virginia Law School, where she is also the director of the National Security Law Center. She's also a member of the State Department's Advisory Committee on International Law and is an editor of the Lawfare blog and the American Journal of International Law's Agile Unbound series. Before joining the Academy, she served as Assistant Legal Advisor for Political and Military Affairs in the U.S. State Department's Office of Legal Advisor. And while at the State Department, she also served, among other places, as the Legal Advisor to the Embassy in Baghdad during Iraq's constitutional negotiations. Her research focuses on national security and international law, both the use of force and the law of armed conflict. And of late, as you'll hear, she's been doing a lot of work on artificial intelligence as it relates to these areas of law. And indeed, the primary focus of our discussion today is Ashley's work on AI as it relates to the laws of war. We begin by talking a little bit about the nature of AI and machine learning more generally, and then how AI might implicate first the use at bellum regime in terms of how states might rely on AI in making decisions regarding the use of force. We also talk a little bit about the risks associated with artificial general intelligence and how that might implicate use at bellum considerations. And finally, to round things out, we look at a couple of pieces that Ashley's written, looking at the IHL or law of armed conflict implications of AI, looking at both how the law of armed conflict could be actually coded into artificial intelligence and how AI might assist commanders on the ground in conducting themselves in compliance with IHL. I think you'll find it a fascinating survey of her recent work and the complex issues that it grapples with. So with that, I bring you Ashley Deeks. Ashley Deeks, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks very much for inviting me. Well, to begin, I'd like just to ask you to you know, share something about yourself that maybe your colleagues don't know about you. Sure. 
so one thing I sometimes tell people that they're uh, surprised and interested to hear about is that uh, I was on an aircraft on September 11th that was returning from Europe um, right as the planes hit. And uh, I ended up getting uh, grounded in St. John's, Newfoundland, which is a very small town. Uh, and uh, we were there for about eight days. There was a former U.S. Uh, Army base that I think we had given over to the Canadians. And so we spent a lot of time there watching CNN. Um, but the borders were closed and, uh, and it was a very... It felt obviously very, very troubling and disturbing, um, but in retrospect, sort of a, a historic milestone for me, especially given where my career ha has ended up going. So uh, related thanks to the people in Canada who took good care of us. Well, that is interesting. Yeah. So and, and did that sort of nudge you in, in the direction of your current, like your focus on national security, international law as it relates to armed conflict? Uh, so actually the, the way I, I, I already was aware of the existence of the laws of armed conflict as a, as an area of practice, uh, partly because when I interviewed, uh, for the job, for a job in the office of the legal advisor, one of the people who interviewed me was David Kay, uh, who has, uh, gone on to become a special rapporteur and, right. and so on, he had the law of war portfolio in L which we, we call the Office of the Legal Advisor, L. Right. And, uh, and when I, when I, after I interviewed with him, I thought to myself, that is a cool job. <laughs> so uh, the way that L works, you get assigned to a, a first portfolio that may or may not have a lot of international law in it. Uh, but ever since I had talked to David Kay, I had my eye on that as a potential uh, future job in L. And uh, and by the time it came around, uh, it was about 2004, I guess, where 2003, when I shifted into that office, there was not just one law of war portfolio, but there were many, there right, were five right. or six uh, law of war portfolios. But so uh, the 9-11 the uh, St. John's Newfoundland incident, uh, you know, I think uh, heightened my interest, but the whole... Uh, it, uh, sort of post 9-11 uh, legal landscape made that portfolio um, particularly interesting to me when it came time to, to switch jobs. Interesting. Wow. Well, I mean, you are well known for writing on all kinds of different areas relating to the laws of armed conflict. You said Bellum. We could talk about a number of things, but you've been doing an awful lot of work recently on artificial intelligence and how it relates to these areas and uh, actually when I started looking at both your recent publications and your forthcoming publications, it struck me that you're trying to corner the market on this, this area. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot here for us to talk about. But I thought before we dive in to, and maybe we can start with uh, how artificial intelligence impacts or implicates the Zed Balaam. But before we dive in, I thought we could just uh, begin by talking a little bit about artificial intelligence itself, because I think that some of the people in the area of of laws of war may have only a passing familiarity with the issues of artificial intelligence, machine learning, the different kinds of algorithms. So perhaps we could begin by you just telling us a little bit about AI and machine learning in general. Okay, I'm, I'm happy to do that. So uh, I'll, I'll start with AI, which um, notoriously lacks a precise 
definition. Uh, I think the basic idea is something like um, information processing techniques and technologies that can solve tasks that require human-like perception or human-like cognition, planning, uh, learning, or even physical action. Um, so categories of AI that you or others may have heard of include tools like computer vision, uh, natural language processing, uh, things like what Siri does, uh, speech recognition, um, and machine learning is uh, a, a, an integral tool, I think, to uh, much of artificial intelligence, which is powered by algorithms. Um, and uh, so what is machine learning? So uh, some algorithms are able to find relationships between different variables and then predict outcomes based on the presence or absence of those variables. Machine learning is often thought of as algorithms and systems that can improve their own knowledge and experience, uh, own knowledge or performance right. uh, with experience. There are different forms of it. Um, I'm not a, a technologist or a computer scientist, um, so I'm not going to try to explain structured versus unstructured machine learning, but there are um, different forms that it can take. Um, and so basically what happens is you have computer scientists or data scientists who can create algorithms to recognize and classify things. So maybe this is classifying cat photos versus dog photos uh, or classifying uh, which movies in the set of 2000 movies are scary movies as opposed to comedies. And then you, you can reward and punish the algorithm based on its success rate or its error rate. Um, and the algorithms learn how to improve their own predictive abilities over time. So they're becoming more and more accurate. Um, an example that I think is often useful is um, uh, appears in the medical field. So uh, you have uh, data scientists who train their algorithm on 500 x-rays. Uh, some of those x-rays show lung cancer and some show healthy lungs. And we tell the algorithm which x-rays are which. Right. Which show cancer, these don't. And then um, we test our algorithm with 100 new x-rays that the system has never seen. Uh, and we see if it gets it correct, we can adjust, we can tweak, uh, tell it which it got right and wrong. Um, and over time, it will uh, improve and, and improve its accuracy. Um, just one thing to note here is that we often won't know exactly how it is that the algorithm is detecting the cancer, um, even if its accuracy is very high. And so this is what we often hear about is the black box, right. is not fully understanding how the system is weighting these different variables to make the predictions that it's making. Uh, and just, I guess, final thing to note both about um, machine learning and about um, the algorithms that go into AI more generally, you need lots and lots of data. Uh, one of the reasons we're seeing an increased interest and experience and uh, improvement in AI and machine learning is that we now have much more uh, data in a, a more accessible form than we did a decade ago. And it also requires computers that can process massive quantities of data quickly. And we are, uh, we are more equipped with those than, than we were in the past. So, so the bottom line is we're talking about um, algorithms, tools that can find patterns in large quantities of data uh, that can detect anomalies and that can help us make, uh, it, make predictions about uh, what's going to happen in the future. Right.
Okay. And so, and there are different kinds of algorithms, but perhaps we can just put a pin in that and come back to talking a little bit about the different kinds of algorithms as we get into the different, you know, how, how they apply in different uh, areas of law. So perhaps we can begin then with looking at uh, USAD Balam. And you have an article in particular with uh, Nam Lubel and Darag Murray, in which you're looking at how artificial intelligence may uh, be used or impact the use of force by states. So perhaps we could begin with that. And how is it that you think, uh, you and your co-authors think that artificial intelligence may have a role to play in how states respond to uh, uses of force by other states? Sure. Um, so, and I'll just say the, the reason I got interested in uh, the AI and machine learning questions in the beginning was, was uh, thinking about kind of what direction is the, is the use at Bellum and the use in Bella? What direction are they headed? And um, maybe we'll talk later about the lethal autonomous weapon systems debate, but that was an area oh, yes. in which um, <laughs> there were uh, a lot of people and are a lot of people very concerned about this idea of, of killer robots. What I was interested in thinking about is what are the kind of more modest antecedent ways in which uh, uh, actors in this space and the use at Bellum and use in Bellow space um, might turn to these kinds of tools to help them make predictions and decisions short of, uh, sort of full autonomy for robots. Um, so, uh, so Noah Mandara and I had, had been talking about the kinds of decisions that um, government officials have to make, state officials make uh, in the use ad bellum space. And, um, you know, one of the things that governments uh, need to predict is uh, whether they're going to be attacked by uh, another state or by a non-state actor. Um, and they they worry about this because uh, they want to be prepared to act in self-defense if they can. Um, there's the concept, as you know, of anticipatory self-defense, which says um, you don't have to wait until the attack is fully completed um, before you can respond. And uh, and so this is a space in which you could imagine with the right data, the right historical data, um, you could be uh, assisted by uh, algorithms that can help you predict uh, what happens when country X's troops move to this location as opposed to this location, or um, what, how should we think about uh, or predict what's going to happen when a missile launcher gets moved from place A to place B. Um, so so the, the sort of pure anticipatory self-defense question is one that struck us as something that states might ultimately look to algorithms to assist in. Um, and a, a second area is proportionality, trying to uh, predict whether a particular response by a state would be proportional to the incoming uh, armed attack against it. Um, and a third area, and this is, I think, the area where we're seeing uh, use at Bellum being implicated most quickly, in other words, these questions are ripe, uh, I think today, are uh, in the cyber arena where, you know, states are largely agreed, uh, not entirely agreed, but largely agreed <laughs> that uh, there are some kinds of cyber operations that can count as armed attacks uh, that would trigger a right of self-defense. And the speed of cyber is such 
that uh, states are interested in cyber autonomy. Um, and so they will have to ask and answer and maybe code in international law uh, to any sort of automated or autonomous cyber responses that they try to, to set up that might rise to the level of, um, of a use of force or an armed attack. So there's a, a number of things there for us to unpack. Um, so beginning with just the idea of an armed attack whether actual or imminent, and the extent to which AI can assist. Well, well, this is the question. Is AI simply going to assist decision makers in understanding that an armed attack is imminent? Uh, Or to what extent do we think that at some point AI is going to be relied upon to make the decision that an armed attack is imminent and that therefore a use of force in self-defense is appropriate. And as you as you outline in your article, that raises a host of problems uh, about AI itself. So maybe we could start drilling into that a little bit. Okay. Um, so I'll I'll answer it uh, putting aside cyber for a minute. Right. Because cyber, um, I think, as you say, is because of its immediacy, and I mean that's a whole that's a whole other podcast episode. <laughs> Uh, probably so. There's there is a lot to say there. I think, um, and as I as I said, I think it's it's pretty ripe in terms of a, a legal conversation. Um, I, I think we are a ways off from uh, being at a stage at which states are willing to delegate uh, to systems that rely on artificial intelligence to make judgments about whether something is an armed, whether that state has suffered an armed attack and um, and what kind of response it will uh, be appropriate to launch. In other words, the, the, the victim state would have to be willing to delegate to uh, an AI tool a decision about whether a use of force and response is necessary and what kind of response would be proportional. You know, there are vague echoes of that conversation in the lethal autonomous weapon systems debate about how sophisticated our systems really are or can be at this point right. um, to gauge those responses. I think it is a, it's a harder problem in the use at Bellum even than in the use in Bellow uh, lethal autonomous weapon systems debate because the concepts of necessity and uh, use at Bellum proportionality are are quite vague um, or quite sub- subjective in their uh, subject to being um, interpreted different ways by different states. Um, and I, I personally, and I think many, many people I know would be very uncomfortable uh, unless uh, de- delegating a decision about the necessity of a, a need to respond to a, to a computer system. I will just say, you know, uh, these systems are all controlled by humans. Right. So I don't want to suggest that there's there are these sort of abstract systems running around that are totally disconnected from what the people have have crafted them to do. Uh, But uh, I am uh, skeptical that it would be possible at this point to uh, to build into an AI system all of the uh, complexities of making a determination about whether a response was necessary. Right. you know, you, the, the system would have to understand at a very high level of sophistication, uh, you know, have sanctions not worked, 
is there a reason to just let this one slide because the attacker is a nuclear power, all those kinds of things. Uh, so I think we're, we're uh, uh, quite some ways from that. So at this point, I, I think we're mostly talking about AI assisting decision makers, informing their decisions. Um, but, but there, I do think we're seeing there's probably a fair amount of AI embedded in the intelligence that's being fed to the national leadership, right? I right. think um, from, from all I've read, our intelligence community uh, is relying on uh, and developing sophisticated AI to uh, help make predictions uh, about you know, future events, pandemics, riots in foreign countries. Uh, they're using AI in all sorts of translation tools. If we are collecting intelligence in Azerbaijan, you know, can automatically convert Azerbaijani to English. So there are lots of ways in which AI is feeding into the kinds of information that uh, the national uh, command would, would require to make that decision. Uh, but I think we are some ways from a, a, a world in which the systems are uh, not waiting for a human decision, but are making the, the action themselves. Right. Yeah. And you do talk in the paper about issues of reliability, both the quality of the, 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 the data and the quality of the, the algorithms, decision making or predictive ability and the reliability of that. And, and it strikes me that in addition to that, we have to, and you were sort of getting at this in your comments, the, the, the notion between sort of narrow intelligence and broad intelligence in, in the field of AI. So that my understanding, like Max Tegmar in his book, Life 3.0, sort of analyzes this, this distinction. And so in narrow areas like the game of Go or chess, AI is long exceeded human capability. But in more broad uh, problem-solving contexts, AI has yet to surpass us. So, but then, um, you know, yet again, it's improving at, at rates that we would not have predicted, right? So I think even 10 years ago, a child could recognize a face far better than any, any computer, but in a very short period of time, we've now got to the point where computers are able to recognize faces out of a massive database on the basis of merely a picture of a fragment of a person's face. Right. Uh, and so that, you know, that in exponential increase in the ability of AI gets us closer to, you know, sort of the futuristic sci-fi idea of a, a super AI determining whether another country is about to launch an armed attack. Um, but again, I think that as you point out, the, the, the myriad of data points that include not only the deployments of, of forces, but also the, the intent of decision makers based on inferences drawn from you know, a myriad of, of small clues is something that human analysts engage in, but it's not clear that AI yet is able to develop that kind of nuanced, sophisticated analysis. But I don't know, perhaps you have more insight into this. No, I th so I think it's a it's a great point. I'm glad you you brought this up because this is one of the things that I've struggled most with in trying to understand and uh, understand about and write in this area. And that is, uh, on the one hand, not falling prey to this irrational exuberance about everything that AI uh, you know can do that it's some kind of almost magical system. Um, 
and can do everything. And once I start to think, well, yeah, I'm sure we could develop something like that. I read something else where somebody uh, who is a computer scientist says, look, even our basic computer vision is terrible and it's very easy to trick. And, you know, we're not going to have self-driving cars for another 30 years. On the other hand, uh, you know, there's an aspect to what you say, which is, you know, we turn around and they're, um, you know, the systems have gotten increasingly good overnight. And so not wanting to get left behind as, as a, as a lawyer, uh, in making sure that we have kind of guardrails around this stuff because we were complacent and thinking it would never happen. Right. So I try to, uh, I waffle between the two. I try to walk somewhere between those two, uh, extremes, but it is a challenge, especially I think because I'm not trained as a computer scientist and, uh, can only, uh, kind of read about it secondhand um, and don't have an, an internal specific opinion about the state of any particular um, technology or, or, or AI or machine learning algorithms being developed. And you talk in the paper about even in the context of where you have an AI that's merely assisting in the decision making or making recommendations that then humans take into consideration in making decisions in relation to, for instance, the exercise of the right of self-defense, there's this thing called, I think you call it autonomy bias, where humans tend to overly rely on the recommendations provided by AI on the assumption that, oh, well, it must be right. The computer said it. Right. So I, I, this is this idea that people sometimes refer to as automation bias. Right. Uh, that the system uh, must know something I didn't know. Uh, it has all of the quantitative power uh, that I don't, it, it has the ability to, you know, keep in mind, so to speak, thousands of pieces of data, which I don't have. And so if it recommends something, it's going to take a fair amount to persuade me not to go along with that recommendation. So, uh, you know, maybe this goes back to your, your question, uh, two questions ago about, you know, are we at a point at which states are going to kind of go to force on the, uh, go to, go to war with each other on the basis of AI recommendations. You know, on the one hand, if you're the prime minister of Canada, say, <laughs> and your uh, sophisticated AI system says, you know, Mr. Prime Minister, ninety uh, percent uh, likelihood that the U.S. is about to uh, invade Ottawa. It's, on the one hand, the prime minister won't want to take uh, his country to war on the basis of a computer having told him to do so. On the other hand, uh, if he says, well, the U.S. would never do that and the U.S. troops march over the border, uh, you know, he w- there will be m- massive ramifications after the fact, particularly because the AI system did recommend to him, right. did predict that there was going to be this invasion uh, and there will be uh, hell to pay for not paying attention to the machine. Right. So there's a there's there are going to be sort of tricky, tricky navigation of that. I think this is also true if, if we if we get to the use in Bellow. I think it's also true with regard to recommendations that the, the systems make to commanders to do or not do certain things uh, that affect the uh, incentives that the uh, that the commanders have to do or, or not do things. I mean, it, it sort of brings to mind the the famous case. I think it was in 1983 that this lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Union, Stanislav Petrov was informed that the early warning system 
had indicated that the United States had launched a ICBM, followed by five more, that there were six ICBMs en route to the Soviet Union. And the, and the protocols required him to pass that information on with the almost certain result that the Soviet Union would have launched a, a counterstrike. And he just he decided that it had to have been a computer error yep. and he ignored it, thankfully for us. But it's true. And for but for every one of those, there's the Vincennes incident. Right. right? Where, uh, uh, or I think there have been some suggestions uh, that maybe Iran wouldn't have shot down the Ukrainian passenger jet if it had relied exclusively on uh, um, its its computer systems. Right. So. Uh, so, uh, you know, both of those things are true. I mean, Petrov was a, is a, a hero, a, media, a hero to all of us for, for kind of ignoring the system. Um, but I think where, what that will come down to is the people using these systems will need to be well-trained to understand the existence of automation bias and understand how they're supposed to respond if they feel as though you know, all of their past experience cuts the way against uh, cuts against the recommendation that the system's making or so on. What you know, what what are they how are they expected to respond? But confronting the bias head on and being clear about the fact that it that it exists, uh, I think will be important moving forward. Right. And to what extent do we really put our full reliance in the system? Again, it brings to mind. You, have you seen the movie AlphaGo? I did, yes. Yeah, so and you reference the match in the paper, um, but in the movie itself, I mean, there's this this moment when the AI that is playing the the greatest Go player in the world makes this move. I think it's in in the, the third game, and, and Wired has a great article on this. Right, it says the two moves that changed the world, but move thirty seven of the match, the AI makes this crazy move. And, and the all the commentators in, in yeah, the commentators in, in South Korea are laughing at it. But what was most, I thought, instructive is that the AI developers were freaking out. They thought their AI had just made a mistake that it had, it had sort of uh, lost the plot. And it's only like 20 moves later, everyone's like, oh, my God, that move was brilliant. It was, and it, it was assessed by the AI as a one in 100,000 move. Wow. But I mean, you think about that in the, in the context of you said Bellum and the AI is telling you something that sounds crazy. Yeah. Do you act on it? Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and this is where we can, I think, circle back to. And again, I think we could spend the entire episode talking about cyber. But as you point out, in the context of cyber, these decisions are going to have to be made and delegated to AI because they, they have to be made so quickly. Uh, and yet you could imagine a circumstance or a, a series of events occurring in cyber in which the AI is making not only recommendations, but making decisions and implementing those decisions in real time in the same way that the stock market does. And before you know it, you're in a shooting war because of decisions made by the AI. Right. Um, so you mentioned this idea of trust in the system or the, the, that comment, I think. Um, flags the imperative of developing systems that you can trust. And I, I take a fair amount of comfort from the fact that every time I've talked to or with people in militaries, um, they're very interested in making sure that their 
uh, th these systems are are trustworthy, that the commanders will be able to trust and understand uh, what what the systems are recommending and often why. So uh, a, a number of different states uh, and some non-governmental organizations or, um, or industry groups have developed um, ethics and legal principles that they think should guide AI. And on every list, I think, is this idea of trust um, and also transparency. So I just, um, you know, NATO was just um, doing some thinking about, about AI and the idea of trusting uh, the system, needing to trust the system before it can be deployed was, uh, was pervasive. So that, I mean, that, that brings us really, I think, to the next or one of the next issues, which is this whole idea of both transparency, problems of attribution and explanation. And as you pointed out in the very beginning in the introduction to what is AI and machine learning, one of the characteristics of machine learning algorithms is that we often do not know or understand how the algorithm reached a particular decision. And, and so this poses, it seems to me, a real problem in the context of use ad bellum. If a country ends up using force in self-defense in response particularly to an, an alleged imminent armed attack, according to the AI, but afterwards is incapable of explaining why the AI made that recommendation. And you sort of are confronted with this possible scenario where the representative of the country is in the Security Council saying, well, the AI told us so. We don't know why, but we acted. Right. So um, this is uh, often uh, referred to as a question about the explainability of AI or sometimes XAI. Um, others refer to uh, the idea of the interpretability of the system. Um, Cynthia Rudin at, at Duke uh, has done uh, done a fair amount of work on this. And I think this is uh, DARPA, uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, early on understood that uh, explainable AI was going to be important uh, in order to have the military, our military, in a position uh, where they will uh, deploy some of these tools. So um, I think there's now a real, so there've been lots of developments on the explainable AI front. There are different ways that you can build algorithms or kind of supporting systems that run alongside the algorithms uh, that help a human interpret what the system has done and why. Um, there are also even uh, ways in which uh, you can uh, tweak uh, what the information you fed in to see if it produces a different outcome, and that can tell you the importance of a, of a given factor in the system's prediction. Um, uh, at NATO, there, were, there was lots of reference to the making it a white box, right? Moving away from a black box to a white box. So I, I think if our military is worried about explainability in the use in bellow sense, it surely has to be the case that the National Command would worry about explainability in a use ad bellum sense as well. Um, but I do think this is, a, this is a really important thing. I know you don't wanna to spend too much time on cyber, but if states get to a, a place in which they're using autonomous cyber responses, um, I think it's gonna be really important from a domestic law matter, not just an international law matter, uh, that the, the systems are interpretable because 
our parliaments, our legislatures, our Congress um, has a responsibility to oversee those kinds of operations. And, um, you know, we want to make sure both the executive branches and the legislative branches uh, understand what's happening in these in these um, what are often referred to as these as these black box scenarios. Right. Well, and as you say, we, we could we could talk about <laughs> cyber alone and we could spend the entire time talking about you said Bellum. Um, but I know we, we did want to get to law of armed conflict as well. But before we do that, I just I wanted to touch on the problem or the question of artificial general intelligence as that might relate to you said Bellum. And I know you don't address this in your work yet, but I wanted to take the opportunity to chat a little bit about it because to set the stage, my understanding is that you know, artificial intelligence relates to what we've been talking about, algorithms that assist or even implement and make decisions uh, on behalf of humans in, in narrow areas of problem solving. But artificial general intelligence is this idea that we develop at some point an intelligence that is general in nature, that is able to solve all problems and to learn and to adapt and to develop itself and to improve. And that obviously that kind of intelligence as TV programs like Westworld and various sci-fi movies have been grappling with potentially poses a, an existential risk, right? So, and Eliezer Yudowski at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute at Berkeley has, has written about this and, and has famously shown that it is in, uh, virtually impossible to keep this kind of artificial intelligence in the box or off the grid, like off the internet. Once it, once it develops, once we pass the Rubicon, it's out of the box and we're confronted with the possibility of a, a superior intelligence that has interests that are not aligned with ours. So it doesn't necessarily have to be like the Terminator that's it's malign and malevolent and evil. It just have to, has to have different interests than us. And we're, to put it mildly, screwed. Uh, and Toby Ward, an uh, Oxford philosopher, published a book recently this year, I think, called uh, The Precipice, Existential Risk in the Future of Humanity, in which he tries to analyze all these different and to quantify all these different existential risks faced by humanity. And interestingly, he assesses AGI as being the worst human-created risk facing humanity and puts the odds of it wiping us out pretty high. And so it strikes me that that, the thinking about AGI and what role international law should play in creating rules around the development of and research into AGI is not unrelated to use Bellum and to international law more generally. And I know you've been doing work on AI as it relates to treaty formation and, and other more general international law issues. So I thought I would just toss that out there for you. Sure. Well, first I'll say, I think climate change is going to get us first. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have, as you know, I've mostly been focused on um, sort of narrow AI applications. Um, if we're talking about general AI, people are generally talking about systems that are on par with human capabilities that can genuinely learn, learn to solve new problems totally un, 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 dissimilar from those that they've been confronted with before. And I think to get there, uh, it involves teaching machines to understand humans, other humans, um, so, uh, you know, depending on who you re read, we are a very long way from that, or it's very close at hand. Uh, I have tended to take the, it seems like it's pretty far away. We're still wrestling uh, 
in, insufficiently with the, the shorter term problems. So those were the ones I've, I've been focused on. So, um, but I do think it's, it, it could be the kind of thing where we cross the Rubicon um, pretty quickly. Whether international law is up to that, I, I don't know. Um, so you might think, well, if it's really an existential threat, maybe it's akin to nuclear weapons and international law uh, states have been able to use it to, to develop a range of nuclear weapons regimes. Right. Um, but I guess two reasons maybe I'm pessimistic about, uh, about the role of international law here, maybe three. So um, one is the problems that we've seen in the lethal autonomous weapon systems debate about um, inability to agree on definitions, uh, inability to agree on whether autonomous weapon systems in some circumstances will improve compliance with the laws of war versus weaken them. Uh, it also strikes me that general AI may be the kind of thing that it doesn't happen. It's not a binary on-off. This thing has general AI capabilities or it doesn't. Um, a while ago, Ken Anderson and Matt Waxman wrote a piece about, about autonomy and weapons where they argue that it happens very slowly and iteratively. Uh, and it will be very hard to tell when a system moves from having a man or a human still kind of on the loop to having a human not on the loop at all. And I imagine general AI is the same way, that, the, that it is a sort of gradated um, set of capabilities. So there will be definitional problems there too if you were try, trying, for example, to ban it. Um, and I also wonder about the incentives uh, to join a treaty, to negotiate right. and join as among the major players in this space, which are uh, you know, U.S., Russia, China, Israel, and uh, some countries in Europe. Um, there's some pretty disparate interests there. Um, and, uh, you know, not a lot of success in trying to regulate cyber uh, via any kind of form of binding international legal instrument. So uh, those are my initial thoughts. But uh, as I noted, I haven't spent probably enough time on it. And, uh, and so I thank you for <laughs> putting it on my radar as something else to worry about. Yeah, well, I think, as you say, I think the, the interesting thing is that there are no incentives right now on countries to really grapple with this. And on the contrary, they're all engaged in an arms race of a kind in trying to develop AI. But there is this risk that that arms race leads to someone sliding across the Rubicon inadvertently. Uh, and so, you know, I think it is something that we in the international law world could be thinking about. And I think that the, the obvious analogy is the nuclear weapons regime uh, and trying to develop treaties that would put some kind of parameters on the R&D into you know, artificial general intelligence. But as you say, I think it will be very difficult for all the reasons you explained. Yeah. Well, uh, I did want to give you a chance to delve into law of armed conflict or IHL, because I know that you have a few short pieces that are forthcoming. Uh, in addition to what you've already written, and again, we'll post links to, to your current stuff on the website so that people can dig into those in detail. But why don't I just open it up and you can explain what you've been doing uh, on AI as it relates to IHL, and then we'll sort of drill down and, and dive into it. Uh, sure. So the, um, the, the primary piece that I've written on um, uh, machine learning and the laws of armed conflict is this piece called Predicting Enemies, 
um, where uh, I'd been reading about uh, the ways in which our criminal justice system in the United States is using predictive algorithms in two primary settings. One is uh, to try to determine or help judges determine individual dangerousness in the context of bail and sentencing and parole. And uh, our police forces are using predictive algorithms to try to figure out where to patrol. Uh, where is it likely that crimes will take place in the next 24 hours um, down to sort of the individual city block? And in reading about that, it struck me that those are those are questions similar to the questions that militaries have to ask, uh, particularly when they're in armed conflicts in which they're taking in large numbers of detainees and have some international law obligations to review those detentions and figure out whether to release people. Um, and they also need to figure out where should they go out on patrol in a given uh, given shift. Where should we send uh, the tanks today if you're patrolling in an urban environment? Um, so the piece tries to think through ways in which um, uh, those algorithms might, militaries might start to develop those algorithms, what they would look like. Um, and, you know, taking uh, a piece out of the criminal justice playbook, thinking about some of the critiques that have been levied against the criminal justice ones related to things we've talked about, biases, uh, reliability, uh, insufficient quantity or quality of data. Um, but then also uh, kind of making a plea to the military uh, to, to be really transparent about the challenges that they will uh, face, confront, try to resolve in deploying uh, machine learning systems uh, in the military context, I think. The post 9-11 um, uh, first Bush administration uh, examples of going really, really deep on secrecy and uh, engaging in some activities that ended up being highly criticized uh, is a, something we should learn a lesson from, that there, there's uh, a lot of strategic reasons to be uh, transparent about what you're using, um, at least at a macro level, not sharing the algorithms necessarily, but explaining uh, what our military is doing, why, how it's advantageous, and how it's consistent with the laws of armed conflict. Uh, and then two other uh, pieces I've, I've written uh, uh, more recently. One is trying to think about um, coding the laws of armed conflict into algorithms. So uh, what I'm trying to think about is, is uh, you know, what are the other situations in which uh, scholars or computer scientists have um, imagined coding uh, law, uh, building law, you know, um, having systems be able to uh, predict the right, the judge, the right legal outcome in a given case, whether it's uh, in an immigration uh, law code or vehicles in the park, um, people have tried to, tried to code law. So what would that look like in the laws of armed conflict? Uh, context. And there, what I try to do is think about the role for lawyers and computer scientists sitting side by side to identify the relevant factors and first identify the relevant legal framework. So, you know, in targeting the frameworks would be distinction, proportionality, and so on. If in detention, it might be um, if you're trying to assess whether someone poses an imperative threat to security, you want to think about, um, you know, known associations with um, other people who have engaged in violence against your troops might be age, employment, location, family ties, and so on. So lawyers and coders together sitting and thinking about what are those relevant factors that we want the algorithm to pick up, uh, and then having this computer scientist code the algorithm, and then um, having lawyers come in at the tail end to try to interpret 
what the code, what the algorithm has recommended. So if it says 70% likelihood that somebody poses an imperative threat to security, having lawyers be prepared to think about, does that meet the, the legal standard that the um, Geneva Convention set out and so on. So um, it's, it's sort of a thought piece, um, although I did try to run it by some computer scientists to see whether I was out to lunch on it. And um, they seemed to think it was uh, at least an interesting uh, way to start thinking about this stuff. And then finally, going to cyber, which I know you're trying to stay away from, thinking about um, cyber autonomy and uh, how that's going to affect democratic accountability. Um, and I think we one could expand out that argument to think more generally about uh, whether machine learning and AI will uh, make it even harder than it currently is for Congress and the courts and the public to understand what governments are doing in the national security space in our name. Uh, so that's hopefully going to be a, a, a book project that I'm, that I'm starting to work on. Oh, wow. Interesting. Well, I mean, just to take those one at a time, first off, in the predicting enemies piece, I will say I was a, a real fan of the, the theme of forcing governments and armed forces to be transparent and, and to learning the right lessons from uh, global war on terror uh, experience. So I, I thought that was great. But turn to the second piece, I think there's lots of for us to talk about here in terms of trying to code law of armed conflict. And I guess the first question I have is, like, how does this algorithm actually operate? Is this, is this operating to, again, advise uh, commanders in the field on whether, for example, a particular operation satisfies the principle of distinction? Is it is this the coding of law of armed conflict going to be sort of input into autonomous weapon systems that are then going to actually make decisions and implement those decisions without humans in the loop? I mean, how do you see these algorithms uh, playing out? So I, I wrote the piece specifically to try to focus on um, cases in which humans remain in or on the loop. Uh, I'm not envisioning this kind of coding uh, being embedded in autonomous systems that are, are sort of sent out to do what they're going to do. Um, particularly because of the role I see for lawyers on both the front end and back end. So front end lawyers could play a role in, and hopefully will play a role if a, if a state were to try to, uh, create a fully autonomous system, I would hope that there would be lawyers involved in the front end explaining the, the applicable laws of armed conflict to ensure that the systems uh, could act consistent with whatever IHL rules would be relevant to the operation. But in the, in the paper I'm writing, I'm also envisioning lawyers coming into the tail end to help interpret and decide whether the recommendation that the system puts forward um, is enough uh, to, to meet the, the laws of armed conflict. So again, if the system recommends or says, at a 95% level of confidence that uh, a given individual is likely to commit uh, another attack against U.S. forces if released. I think the, a lawyer could look at that and say, um, we're pretty confident that under the laws of armed conflict, you can continue to detain this person. Um, but those numbers could, could fall. There could be much harder cases, right? 60% level of confidence that the person 
probably poses an imperative threat to security. But, you know, what would a JAG say about, about that? But the, the short answer to your question is, I'm envisioning these algorithms um, informing commanders and JAGs, others who are um, answering to the commanders. Um, uh, I think the, there has been a robust debate in the CCW, the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons Forum, about whether it's actually possible to code in principles of distinction and proportionality into systems um, that one could use on the battlefield. And uh, I, again, I'm, I'm not a computer scientist. I think there's, you know, some skepticism about whether you could do that in a in a way in which you could release the systems onto a battlefield to go do, uh, you know, sort of urban setting and have them not engage in violations of the laws of armed conflict. That seems like that's a bridge too far at this point. But uh, I'm persuaded that you could create a system to for deployment in a very uh, sort of limited area that could only target rocket propelled shoulder shoulder fired missiles rocket propelled grenades things that are um, clearly uh, military objects okay so let's unpack that a little more because even setting aside the the issue of autonomous weapon systems so we're we're in a situation in which the algorithm is merely informing or advising uh, commanders in the field i still have some difficulty getting my head around how this operates. And it relates back to what we were talking about in the USAD Bellum context of both the quality and reliability of the algorithm or the machine learning. And so the distinction between narrow and broad uh, intelligence. So if I'm envisioning a commander contemplating conducting a drone strike, and there are clearly going to be potential civilian casualties, he turns to the, uh, to the algorithm for a recommendation on whether this is going to be compliant with the principle of distinction, whether civilian casualties will be excessive in relation to the importance of the military objective. How do we have confidence that the algorithm on the spot is going to have sufficient data particularized to that particular situation that it can provide a, dis a recommendation that is accurate. And related to that, to what extent is it dependent upon the value of the, the, the importance of the military objective that presumably the commanders themselves are going to provide, right? And, and isn't that create a situation in which the commander can just put a thumb on the scale and say, yeah, well, the military objective is really important. And then nothing is excessive in relation to that military objective. And yet we now have the corroboration of an algorithm having said, oh, yes, this was compliant with the principle of distinction. And so it almost potentially creates a, 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 a facade or a shield behind which commanders can, can hide from responsibility for actions that would otherwise have violated the principle of distinction or other principles of IHO. Um, so I guess three thoughts. The, the first is... Um on the, the hypothetical about a drone strike where it seems likely there'll be civilian casualties. Uh, the military already uses, uh, I think, pretty highly automated systems to make collateral damage estimates. That, uh, that I think, and I think many militaries do. So do we trust those systems? Well, I think they've been tested and I think they've been you know, deployed for years. And so there's a long line of, uh, a long history of understanding how they operate and 
where they get it right, where they get it wrong, sort of after action studying whether the the prediction of the system was correct. You know, collateral damage estimate was three civilians, turns out five died. What, what was the cause of the delta? That kind of thing. But I think that's not hugely new. Um, uh, on this, uh, the idea that the commander could kind of, uh, I guess, in or his his subordinates in uh, seeking a, a prediction about proportionality could overestimate the value of the military objective. I think that's true today too. Um, you say, well, then you know, could this could the algorithm be used as a kind of shield or a facade for that? In some ways, I think the use of an algorithm there uh, makes it harder for the commander to get away with that because there's an audit trail. Mm-hmm. If these systems are explainable, then uh, somebody doing an after-action review could go in and, and see that the commander had valued the school at 10 instead of zero. Uh, and that might actually be easier to recreate that than it could be in a total non-automated, non-autonomous uh, setting. Which brings us back to, of course, the importance of transparency, explainability, and and uh, accountability in terms of explaining decisions. Right, right. So then, can you expand a little bit uh, on how you were suggesting this implementation of the principles of IHL would apply in the cyber context? Well, so there, what I'm what I'm thinking about is um, what we might call the double black box. So. The first black box, at least in the United States, but I think also in many other countries, is that it is very difficult for the non-executive branches of government to um, get a get a perfect view on what the executive has decided to do in the national security space, whether we're talking about the military or intelligence operations. Um, and as a result, it's also hard for the, the public to understand that as well. And so that's I think been pretty well defended in the literature. Um, and so what I'm interested in is the addition of this second black box into the existing ecosystem. And that second black box being an increased use of machine learning uh, by the military, by intelligence services, and frankly, even by some of the domestic agencies like uh, Department of Homeland Security. Um, and so the the piece on cyber autonomy is trying to think through um, w- what should the relationship be between the legislatures and executive branches in the U.S. and in, and in other countries um, if states start to use autonomous cyber tools. Uh, you know, many of our legislatures, and I say our because I know you have a <laughs> Canadian uh, background, um, many of our legislatures have some role to play constitutionally or statutorily in uh, use ad bellum decisions, in decisions about whether to go to um, to use force extraterritorially, to use force in self-defense. Um, and as these uh, systems become increasingly autonomous, where goes the role for the legislatures? Um, and so I'm trying to think about what kinds of things could and should legislatures do ex ante um, before it, the question comes up: should should the, should we um, you know ramp up our hostilities against a given country? Um, how should could legislatures um, engage in that process to make sure that they stay in the loop on these um, use ad bellum decisions? Right. 
So I see we've, we've managed to loop back to you, Sadbellum. And so maybe in closing, the, the one question I forgot to ask when we were talking about you, Sadbellum, was a really interesting few paragraphs in your article, uh, is the use of deep fakes and, and how you see deep fakes possibly playing a role in the context of use of force. Yeah, I think this is scary, actually. Yeah, I think I, I, it was a pretty chilling page of the paper. Yeah. Um, it's easy for me sitting at my desk to imagine a, a, a wide range of ways in which um, a provocative country, let's call it country R, um, <laughs> wants to try to lead the United States into an armed conflict with North Korea. and. Uh, produces a deep fake that has Kim Jong-un and his sister uh, saying, tomorrow we launch the nukes against the United States. And it's done at a such a high level of sophistication that our analysts uh, have to take it seriously. And maybe we're good enough that we would detect that it's a deep fake, but um, you know, there might be other countries out there with um, sort of less sophisticated uh, abilities to to get to the bottom of these deep fakes. And the next thing you know, uh, you know, the country that thinks it's about to be attacked launches a, a missile in anticipatory self-defense. So I think there are lots of ways in which you can imagine states making mischief on this front um, to try to lead people down into conflict. And I think in the cyber realm, that's also possible too, where you, you try to engage in false flag attacks um, that make the victim state think that they're coming with a high level of confidence coming from a particular state. And maybe you also supplement that with um, online chatter um, in on, on you know, social media or so on that, um, that leads the, the erstwhile victim state to think, oh, my God, we're, we're coming under attack. So I think deep fakes are a real um, challenge. And so I, I, my understanding is that there are a lot of people hard at work in trying to um, you know, defeat and uncover deep fakes. And that seems like a very important thing in the USAID Bellum space to get that right. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And as you, as you point out, there's a, another section of the paper that talks about this, the deep fake slash false flag concept within cyber, where again, everything is compressed into like such short timeframes that so little time is, uh, there's no luxury of time in trying to determine whether or to what extent this is potentially a false flag. Right. Well, listen, I've taken more of your time than I had asked. Um, but before I let you go, I did want to ask if you have three books or articles that relate to not necessarily just AI and the laws of war, but the laws of war more generally or, or whatever you've been working on that you would recommend to the blogosphere. Um, sure. So, um, so one thing I'd recommend is, uh, and this full disclosure, I was the, um, the symposium editor for this, um, unbound symposium on AI and international law. So we have a couple of really good essays that think about different facets of the interplay between AI and, um, and international law. One is Steve Hill from writing from a NATO perspective, um, a couple on, on human rights and AI and one on self-driving cars um, and international law. So I, I commend that series. And, and where is that published? Uh, it's online under, um, so Unbound, Agile Unbound. Oh, it's Agile Unbound. Okay. And it's all available um, and downloadable. 
online. Um, the second piece that I came across in, in, in writing the coding IHL piece is a piece by Lisa Shea and um, some of her colleagues. She's a, a West Point faculty member called Do Robots Dream of Electric Laws? An Experiment in the Law as Algorithm. So this appears as a chapter in Robot Law, which is an edited volume um, uh, by Brian Kahlo and, and some others. And the experiment has to do with trying to program in speeding ticket enforcement into code. So I think it's a really excellent illustration of something that seems relatively simple to program in, a, a, a law that's, that seems on its face quite straightforward. Giving tickets to drivers who speed uh, requires a wide range of discretionary decisions. Hmm. So, for example, if somebody is speeding for five minutes, do you give them one ticket? Do you give them five tickets? Do you <laughs> give them more? Um, do you give somebody a ticket when they go half a mile over the speed limit? Um, do road conditions matter? So she, they split up um, a, a group of coders into three, give them different assignments, letter of the law, spirit of the law, and then a pretty detailed code parameters. And the groups arrive at very different um, numbers of tickets that they give out. So it's a very compelling read. Interesting. And the, the third thing, I'm actually, I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to reading a new book that's coming out by John Allen, who's a former um, U.S. Marine Corps four-star general, and Daryl West, who's at Brookings, called Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence, which I think will be relevant to everything we've just been talking about here. Well, listen, thank you so much. Uh, this has been really interesting. And I imagine that you have given a lot of people a lot of food for thought today. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Again, you can find links to the material discussed today and the reading recommendations on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. Be sure to check out our next episode in which I will be speaking with Eric Jensen of Brigham Young Law School on his latest work on autonomous weapons systems and the law of armed conflict. And again, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and tell your colleagues who are not on social media. And take a moment to rate the podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you use. You can follow us on Twitter at Jibjab Podcast. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Greg Martin. The music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. See you next time.